supported by Oxford University Press who want to let you know about some recent exciting changes to their online platform MyMaths. Now for anyone unfamiliar with MyMaths it's a whole school digital resource for primary and secondary schools. It contains hundreds of self-marking homework activities, interactive lessons, games and automated results tracking making it great for both remote and classroom teaching. Both the schools I've worked in have had my math subscriptions, but I'm going to be honest with you here, I've always been really frustrated that it was built on Flash, meaning students couldn't access it on their phones or tablets. Well, great news. MyMaths has recently undergone a massive conversion project to modernise the platform and make it compatible with tablet devices. Woohoo! The team have also been working with teachers to identify new features to add to MyMaths. So the latest update allows teachers to see their students' individual answers rather than just their scores. Obviously, this makes it so much better to know exactly where your students have gone wrong in their homework so you can offer them some help. There's also video support in secondary MyMath activities. These videos are designed to offer secondary students the right help at the right time as they work through their homework. New batches of support videos are added to the platform on a regular basis. An annual subscription to MyMaths for your whole school costs just £625 plus VAT for secondary schools and £355 plus VAT for primary schools with discounts available for smaller schools. So even if your school previously had a MyMath subscription, you can still sign up for a free trial to check out these great updates. Any teacher can sign up for a 30-day free trial at mymaths.co.uk. That's mymaths.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. Now, this is another conference takeaways episode coming live from the end of day two of the MA Maths Conference that's being held. This is the 9th of April, 2021. This is, as the things are these days, a remote conference. So I'm joined from my office uh, in sunny Lancashire. Where, where, where do you? you London, aren't you, Joe? South London, yeah, just on South. the outskirts of London. Yeah. Beaming live, uh, Joe Morgan from South London. Hello, Joe. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. I'm all right. Now, just to give the listeners a bit of an insight here, <laughs> you, you've gone up in the world in terms of your uh, your kind of remote learning delivery here. So you were just telling me before you've got a gaming chair that you sat on that massages you. And the <laughs> other thing you've got, you've got studio lights that are kind of beaming in from either side. So what's going on here? Are you becoming the next YouTuber? Is this, well, is I think this it the actually, plan? Yeah, it's, it's partly that. My husband said a little while ago I should set up a YouTube channel and do some math stuff. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what, I don't know what he wants me to do on this um, YouTube channel. But he had he wanted to get me all this equipment. So he bought me a microphone and he bought me the lights. But actually, there was a motive, you see, because he does lots of Dungeons and Dragons and he sits in this office a lot of the time doing Dungeons and Dragons games online. Um, actually, I think it was really, it was all equipment that he wanted and he was he was sort of pretending he was buying it for me. But the well, these uh, lights are fancy, aren't they? These the lights, lights are, really yeah, the lights are really cool because they're, well, it's not like, I don't need a remote control when I'm sitting at the same desk as the lights, but I can control them with a remote. Um, but the, the gaming chair, um, I don't think I need to massage my back while I'm at a conference, but I can if I want now. Um, and it's a really snazzy gaming chair where you can you can pretty much lie down flat in it if you want. So I could have I could have I could have been uh, 180 degrees watching the MA conference today. Um, wow. But yeah, I was just I was just telling you earlier that it's um, it's not got a very good centre of gravity, and I fell off it earlier. So I haven't had a good day, Craig. <laughs> I, I literally fell on the floor, and the chair fell on top of me because I was leaning over to pick up something from the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but you've recovered and what a great way to end a day with a podcast eh? so you know it's the only way is up now a couple of things we need to say here, joe before we dive into things um we should be in a quiz here at this point at the yeah. end a quiz live but we've a bit of history with quizzes now regular conference listeners will know all about this we've we've done i think we've done two big quizzes together certainly the two that, that enter yeah. my mind one was at the bic me conference a couple yes. of years back and um 
regular listeners may remember two fascinating facts about that quiz. So I wonder if you can remember either of them. But there's the obvious one that we should do the overall results, yes. uh, which we were the winners. Um, <laughs> but a couple, a couple of questions for you here about it. Um, so can you remember the fascinating fact about the first question of the quiz? Was this the was this the Oasis question? Yeah, <laughs> it was just it was so funny because in the run up to it, like we'd all been joking about how um, our strengths and weaknesses in quizzes, and you'd said a, a number of times that you'd be absolutely brilliant if there was a round a round on what well, Oasis songs from the nineties, specifically ninety four to ninety seven. That was it. Oasis. It was a very specific yeah, right. period of time, and then. Um, and then, and then, like the first question, they said, "Oh, write down the artist in the song." And was it "Roll with It" or something? It was like a real Live forever oasis. Live yeah, forever. yeah. And it was, and it was just such a moment of, "Oh my god, this this quiz is made for us." It was really good. And, yes. and my other question about that is, can you remember who won the quiz for us with the last question and and what what it was about? Can you remember this because it was a tiebreaker. Um, I remember it being a tiebreaker, and I remember yeah. it being really exciting. And I can't remember what the question was. No, well, I'll I tell you now, it was Andrew Taylor had a massive yes. aching. Who, who was actually the person who won the quiz for us. <laughs> yeah. He knows everything. And uh, it was about which artist um, has mathematical symbols as their album titles. And he, oh, before even the question had finished, he yelled yeah. out Ed Sheeran. And we, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Quiz. So I love the way that quiz. Andrew knows everything about everything. Like he's got, there's no limits to his knowledge. He knows every single topic that could come up. Um, he he is the best person to get on your quiz team, definitely. He is good. He is good. And then uh, 12 months later, we had at the MA ATM conference, we yeah. were back, but we didn't go quite as successful this time. And there was a, a very controversial incident here, Joe, wasn't there? I'm surprised there? you would bring this up, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, was, uh, this was where uh, the question was, how many players on a netball team, which um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to say sort of talk about a gender thing here, but I'm sorry, but back in my day, girls played netball at school. I'm sure boys do as well now, but it used to be that girls played netball at school. And you won't meet a girl my age who hasn't played netball because we all did. I may not be very good at it, but I know that there are seven players on the netball team. And if you remember, I was trying to draw out the positions of them to try and just to make sure I was right. So I know there's like a centre and a goal attack mm. and a goal defence mm. and, and a wing attack. And I was just trying to get them all. And I couldn't remember what one of them was called. Um, but we left it at seven and I went off to the toilet. <laughs> and then um, when I came back, um, well, while I was gone, you changed my answer because you thought I wouldn't, I wouldn't know this thing that women know and men don't. Um, and, then, and then we got it wrong. So well done. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd never played netball before, and I had no insight into it. I just had a gut feeling it, it, it wasn't seven. I was just reminding my wife of that story, and uh, yeah, she said mansplaining and all this kind of thing. It wasn't, yeah, no, it was a low point. So I thought we should get that out of the way early on, just in case you were thinking of bringing it up. So we're skipping the quiz tonight because skipping we have this, this sore point here where you will just change my answers. Yeah. <laughs> skipping the quiz. Right, okay. So on to the day, Joe. So it started off with a keynote from uh, one of our favourites. I'd like to call would you which i mean it was pushing it to say our friend right what, what would you i think it's pushing it for you to say she's that she's your friend she's definitely my friend right? I, i've met her loads of times and we always have a good drink together and a good laugh and you know well, so yeah not your friend though no we should be on the podcast podcast friend maybe, oh, okay podcast friend oh, something maybe yeah. something but anyway dr hannah fry and she let me get this right Joe. she is the like, but you have one year president kind yes. of cycles the of the MA. She's the current, the outgoing president. Well, she right finished. We had the AGM today at six o'clock, and that was her last. She chaired that, and it was her last um, act as president. So yes, she's finished now. She just finished her year, and she was a very active president. She was amazing. She she came to all our council meetings and. You know, as, as riveting as they are, I was quite surprised <laughs> yeah. to see her at them. Um, but yeah, she's um, she's been a fantastic president of the MA and obviously helped raise the profile of it because she's so uh, internationally known. So yeah, she was great. Fantastic. And she delivered, I assume it's kind of a president's thing to do the, yeah. the, 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 the keynote. So she did the keynote to open up day two of the conference. Um, and yeah, well, you tell me what you thought, some of your highlights. And I've got a few kind of questions that I want to discuss with you. Well, she was talking about communicating maths with uh, the sort of general public and sort of ways that we can communicate. And a lot of the ideas, I suppose, apply to anything that you're communicating it was really sort of talking about public speaking and how to deliver good um sort of speeches and presentations and then she went through a series of tips and, the, and they were it was all it was all brilliant she's always a good speaker um I loved it when she talked about Simon Singh's um firm at last theorem you know the BBC Horizon 
Um, and she, she, I didn't know. Actually, she said it won a BAFTA, and I didn't know that. I didn't know um, that. No. But I, that is, that's one of those things. Like I was talking to my husband the other day about how sometimes there's films that when they're on TV, you watch it just because you just you'll yes. always watch it. Like yes. there's certain, there's certain. We were trying to list the films where if we were sort of channel hopping and we saw this film was on, we'd watch it even though we've seen it a million times before. Fifty Shades and, of Grey had imagined. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't on the list of the film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Firm, the Horizon episode of Firm at Last Room is one of those things where I could li- I could just watch that any time. Yeah. And yeah. she was talking about it and I was thinking, oh, I really need to watch that again. Um, and I remember once I had, you know, remember back in the day when we used to teach. Um, a-level maths and further maths and it was a bit more chilled than it is now yes so you know you you had a bit more time and I remember I had a further maths class and it was quite a small class there's maybe I think there was 11 or maybe 13 in that class they were really bright we we'd kind of covered all the content and we were just having fun with maths and I don't think it's like that anymore I mean I haven't taught A-level in a couple of years but you know back back sort of we're going only going back five years A-level teaching was a real joy and um I remember I was talking to them about proof and then I spent a whole lesson showing them that episode nice. and they were saying to me, um, I, they said um, they, they didn't understand the really complex maths because it's all this, I don't know, is it ring theory? Or, so there's something really complicated. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I don't know what it is. Um, and I said, oh, no, don't worry. I don't understand it either, but you're still going to enjoy the documentary. And I said, it's not, it doesn't matter if you don't understand a word of the maths. Obviously they understand what Fermat's last theorem is and that's sort of that idea of, of, of you know, what, what we're trying to prove. But how it was proved is very, very complex. Yeah. And um, and I said, it doesn't matter that you don't understand that because I think you're going to enjoy it anyway. And they absolutely loved it. And that moment when they're in, I mean, she showed it, didn't she, in her talk where they interview Andrew Wiles and and, and they zoom in on his face and he kind of um, just has like a tear in his eye. Um, and it just gets me every time. I just think it is the most beautiful sort of um, insight into mathematicians and and what mathematicians work looks like and how it feels to really achieve something in your life you know he worked on it his whole life for me when he was a young boy he was interested in it and and it's it's not like we're saying to our students oh you're going to be like Andrew Wiles but it's just that sort of little um insight into mathematicians and also that that sort of like um look how how much this means to him and it's isn't it lovely what a great documentary it is I I showed it (laughs) I've showed it to a few classes I showed it to um a lower achieving year 10 class that was a ropey class. And Did I just you? thought, wow. not the full thing, but I wanted to show them that clip. Yeah. And, and it split the crowd. Some of the, and it wasn't like a gender thing. It was some of the lads and some of the girls were like, what the hell is this guy doing? Here? Like, he's crying over maths. Like, <laughs> what the hell is this guy doing? Whereas some of them were like, one of my favorite comments was, he loves maths more than you do, sir. And that, that, I thought that was kind of like a positive thing. Yeah, like, yeah, you, that's you could tell, because you can't fail but to see the passion. And I think yeah. I've always thought this, and um, this is, I'm going off, going off on one here. But one of the mistakes I made, that, I don't even know why I'm telling this story, but I'll just do it quick. One of the mistakes I made earlier on in my career is I tried to be too cool. Now, this may surprise you, Joe, but I'm not the coolest <laughs> person ever, right? And I right. used to try and kind of be down with the kids and all this kind of stuff. And I realized very quickly that the kids see through that kind of falseness. Whereas I think you have a much better chance if you just like accept that you love maths, and particularly if you've got a particular t- part of maths that you love, like I love a bit of algebra and all this yeah. kind of stuff, and that passion comes through, even the most mathematically reluctant kid almost has to give you a bit of admiration and kind of buy into the fact that you are really passionate about this thing. And I just think that's why I wanted to show that class, that Andrew Wiles clip, because I wanted them to see somebody who genuinely cares about math. So they'll maybe think, ah, maybe there's something a bit more in this subject than, than what I first thought, mm. if that makes sense. But yeah. Who knows? Um, so just with Hannah, I've, I've written down the top tips here, and then I'm yeah. going to ask you a question, Joe Morgan. Are you ready for yeah. this? So these are Hannah Fry's top tips for communication. So know your audience, yeah. start big and big, invite people into your world, have a hook. Uh, people haven't heard enough of experts. The public are smarter than you think and be generous. So this is what I wanted to talk to you about here. So first, when she mentions hooks, I always think to myself, our first Julia Smith's excellent Padlet that she yeah. shares, a mathematical hooks Padlet. And I always think of hooks to um, start off a topic or start off a lesson to kind of uh, kind of hook students in. So my first question to you before I do the big question is, are, are you a believer in hooks? When you're kickstarting kick a topic, you like to hook people in, don't you? Yeah, well, I'm a big believer in narrative and storytelling. Mm, and and yes. the hooks are sometimes part of that. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the beginning. I mean, I was on Julia's Padlet the other day because... I was teaching Pythagoras 
And I was I wanted to really convey the idea of um, the diagonal being the shortest path. Yes. As in, if you're going from A to B, you don't want to kind of go around the right angle. If you yeah, go yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and I was and I was talking about um, I was re- I was trying to explain because we do have a patch of grass outside our school where stu- all the students have cut the corner off. Yeah. And I was talking, I was like, you know, that patch of grass out there, you know, what <laughs> really? like, they didn't know. And I was like, hold on, I know where I can get a photo of this. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, so that's just, and, and it, does it add anything? I don't know. It just, it adds a kind of character to me. And yes. it adds some, it adds this kind of narrative in the lesson where it's, my lessons aren't all just sort of dry lecture delivery. You know, I sort of tell stories and I talk to them mm. about things that they can, um, they can relate to and stuff like that. So yeah, I am a, I am a believer in hooks, but, but not kind of in a sort of gimmicky way or a pointless yes. way, but in a, in a way that makes it part of the narrative of the lesson and just sort of the delivery of an engaging lesson. Um, I think, um, you know, to spare a sort of few minutes for hooks is, is time well spent. I agree. I agree. And yeah, I've, the, the collection Julie's put together is absolutely fantastic. Here's my big question for you, Joe Morgan. So one of the points that Hannah was making, um, if I've understood it right, is that one of the keys to good communications is start big and end big. Yeah. And almost the kind of stuff in the middle doesn't really matter that much. When people mm. go, well, they need a good start you lose them if you don't, if you don't have them at the start. You're in danger of losing them, and you need that big ending as well. But I was almost thinking that's almost kind of not the opposite of what you want to do in a lesson. But certainly, like in a lesson, the middle bit is probably the bit where the kids do the learning, right? Like the hook kind of engages them in a bit. The middle bit's the practice where they develop the fluency, the competency, and the so on. Yeah. And the end bit is almost the bit for the teacher's benefit to do a bit of assessment for learning and get a sense of where they're at. So. It almost seemed to me that a lot of these tips were perfectly suited to, to classroom teachers being communicators. But mm-hmm. this start big, end big, it almost felt with me that actually you want kids to remember the middle bit more than the start and the end. Am I barking up the wrong tree there? Have I gone too deep for you there, Joe? No, I think you're right. There's, um, I just, I wonder if that's a sort of thing that's quite specific to maths, actually. Because when, when, when she was talking... Um, about all these features I was thinking about things that I've done outside of math so um, I've done say um, assemblies mm-hmm. and I've done um, I, I did a talk to students about banknotes last year because I used to work in banknotes I know <laughs> yes, all I about banknotes and and um, oh I did a business studies lesson last year no in fact and that was in December I had to do a taster lesson for business studies because we don't currently have a business studies teacher at my school so I delivered it and I found the narrative there really easy to do um, compared to math lessons, you know, mm. like the, the, these sort of non-math subjects are so easy to, to do storytelling in and so easy to hook students in because you've got all these interesting things you can talk about. And it's not mm. that math isn't interesting. I just think it's harder. It's harder to turn it into narrative. And so actually, I'm just thinking, you're right. In a, It might be that this is quite a specific thing to maths where actually... You're right. The end, the end of the lesson. You're not. It's not like you're going to suddenly. You're going to put all the thing they, that you want them to learn. Yeah, the it's not the big minutes. reveal. Yeah, it's not the yeah. big reveal at the end. Is yeah, it? that doesn't make any sense, does it? Um, but I suppose you might want to. Let me think. So, so it, same Pythagoras lesson I was doing the other day. Do you yeah. remember that um, exam question? It, it's a quite well known one, and it was in I think the sample um, materials for the new GCSE, and it's a park with a like a circular path. So it's got a, it's, a, yeah. it's a rectangular park. And there's a diagonal path going from one side to the other. But in the middle, there's a, cir- a circular path or like yes. say, a pond in the middle. Yes. Students have to work out the distance across the path. So they first of all have to use Pythagoras to get the distance. But then they have to subtract the diameter of the circle that's in the middle. And they have to work out the length of the arc. And yes. it's a really great question. And the thing is that it worked so perfectly in my lesson because we'd done um, circumference and area circle a couple of months ago. And I just taught on Pythagoras. And I said, and now let's, and they're only year eight. But I was like, let's just have a look at how this might look in a GCSE. And I showed them that question. And that felt like, ending big so I think sometimes yeah, yeah, it was yeah. everything together and they were so they left the lesson like really buzzing about this because when one of them put up their hand and said um oh it's Pythagoras and then someone else said oh but look we have to yeah. we have to work we have to use a uh, pi, pi d and it was like it was really good and it like everyone got all excited and actually so I think sometimes we can do that but it's not like all of our lessons have this big dramatic start and dramatic end and then no one pays attention to the important stuff in the middle. Yeah. That, that's not a lesson, really, is it? But yeah, I do think we, we do have opportunities to kind of leave them with something that they go out talking about. Um, and I suppose that depends. I mean, you know, it's not like I say, it's not something I do all the time, but maybe some teachers do. I, I need to see more lessons 
of other subjects now i yeah. think i think i'm too much in my maths bubble now i need to see yeah yeah it's, it's really it's so interesting i get now i'm um now i'm slt i get the chance to do it but often yeah. i get to observe other subjects and it is it is so interesting and like i say when i delivered a business lesson i i the, you know at the end of it i thought right i'm gonna be a business teacher i was really <laughs> ready to stop teaching maths i had this sort of crisis for a few weeks i was saying to my husband and you know what i said to my, I said to my husband i'm actually seriously considering changing subject i might start teaching business and then and then um because to prepare for that lesson you know what i couldn't find any good resources the ones I found were really rubbish. I had to like revamp them all. Yeah, and yeah. he said, you know what? You could set up a resourceaholic for business studies. There <laughs> we I was go. like, oh my God, look at this. This is so exciting. Mm. I'm going to be like the, the new business resources person. Yeah. But yeah, it is the thing about it was, it was a very different experience teaching a different subject. And they, even though I only did one lesson on it, I just found that it was really easy to, I used little video clips and I had these really interesting case studies and you know they were they were kind of uh, uh, doing some writing in the lesson. They were writing paragraphs, and it's just all stuff I'm not used to. And I did really enjoy it. And I, I really think that um, that you know we have a maths is a really challenging subject to teach. We just Absolutely, we yeah. we don't have you know we it, I think it's really interesting, and I think I can make it interesting to my students. But I think it's um, it's more of a challenge to make it engaging, maybe. Okay, so headline from there. Business studies is a piece of piss to teach. All complaints to Joe Morgan there on Twitter. Maths gem at Twitter. Directly complaints there. Right, okay. So uh, anything else to say about Hannah Fry's uh, uh, excellent keynote? Um, only that I... Um, well, first of all, she said there was a, tw- uh, a video of mathematicians talking about how much they like chalk. And it has 22 yes. million views. So I'm going to look that one up. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, and I like the way that she added a seventh tip at the end, which was that using tips is an easy way to pretend your presentation has structure. Yeah, and nice, I was thinking, nice. I'm actually going to use that. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but yeah, I think actually a lot of the things she was talking about are perhaps, um, I was thinking they're more relevant to me in, as a, a conference presenter mm. than perhaps as a classroom teacher. And that I, a lot of the stuff she said sort of, you know, had me thinking about things I could do in my presentations, really. But yeah, it was. Um, she's a great speaker. She's good. She's yeah, very really good. good. Our mutual friend Hannah Fry, as I like to say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, what did you go to after that? What was your um, first I went choice? to see Sheena Flowers talking about preparing Year Eleven students for A Level Study and supporting Year Twelve. Okay. Yeah. Go. Give me. I, I didn't go to that one. Give me some. Give me some highlights. From okay. That. So I mean, I don't currently have Year Eleven and Sixth Form, yeah. but I, I, I feel like I need to keep in the loop on these things. Sure. So um, it was. She was mainly talking about the challenges because of the pandemic. So she was talking about time they've missed from school, their lack of motivation, the pastoral issues, exam results, and all these things, and like all her ideas of um, how to kind of uh, resources we can use, ways we can help the current year 11s get ready for an A-level where they've missed loads of learning um, and where we can't assess them properly so we don't know who's suitable for A-level. And what I really liked in she, she, it was a great talk. She's she's a really good speaker. And what I really liked was she's really honest about the fact that, um, you know, things like she was saying online learning has been a disaster for a lot of students. You know? <laughs> yes, and and yeah. I like that because you get a lot of a lot of people on Twitter, particularly during online learning, were like, oh, isn't it wonderful seeing my students mm. doing all this amazing stuff? And and like it, you you kind of get the impression that it's going really well for everyone. Yes, um, yes. Whereas that, and then secretly we're all thinking, I feel like it's going well in my live lessons, but I have no idea if they're learning anything. And actually, yeah. you know, let's be honest, we know some students are um, – pretending they're in a lesson and they're not really paying attention or they're not even turning up for the lesson. And no one ever seemed to want to admit that. It's almost like, well, at my school, we have 100% attendance. A lot of people were saying that sort of thing. It's like, really? Because not at my school, my year nines, a lot of them weren't turning up at all. And, you know, and it was really hard to to get them to turn up. So she was really honest about that, which was good. Um, And she was talking about the transition stuff that a lot of students do, we want a lot of students to do between GCSE and A-level. And she was saying she was really honest about the fact that a lot of them won't do it. We can set them a load of stuff to do over summer and some will do it and some will choose not to. And some will like leave it to the last minute and not get time. And some will just not be in a sort of the circumstances or the home environment where they can do it. Um, And so, and you know, there's uh, she was, she was saying, she basically talked us through loads of wonderful transition material, but she was really honest about the fact that, that particularly say, for example, sixth form colleges, where everyone's they, they haven't got those students in year 11 yes. everyone's joining at the beginning yes. of year 12 because she was saying if you're in a school with your current year 11s given that we're doing all the they're doing all the 
what they call centre assess grades or whatever they're called, you know, where they're, they're coming up their GCSE grades. They're doing that sort of now. They're doing that quite soon. That then leaves them with a, yeah. quite a lot of time in the summer term to do some kind of A-level readiness yeah, stuff yeah, with yeah. their students. Um, but actually, if, you, if you're if you at a school or a college where everyone joins you at the beginning of year 12, then you can't use this time to do yes. that. Um, and actually, the, the other thing I mentioned from her talk was um, that she, she talked about what she's going to do is at the start of year 12 in September for her two, for her new year 12 students, she's going to teach them. She's going to spend two or three weeks teaching them some GCSE stuff. And actually uh, when she first explained her approach, I kind of disagreed with it. And then she totally convinced me of it because she was basically saying she was going to teach them algebra, some coordinate geometry, certain indices, vectors, circle theorems, and functions. And I was thinking, I wouldn't spend time on circle theorems at that point. I know yeah, they need to yeah. know a couple of circle theorems later on when they do circle um, geometry, but but you know, I, I wouldn't do it then. And I was thinking, I wouldn't do vectors then. Yeah, I, I would yeah, just yeah. I would just recap vectors when we get to vectors, which is probably yeah. at the end of year twelve. But actually, she had a really good point where she's saying, let's say you've got a year 11 now who basically hasn't done vectors at all because it was meant to be covered at the end of year 11 and they've all been off or whatever. And then and or they just have a, they really rushed through it. And she's saying, if they then don't meet it at all until the end of year 12 yeah. and say they're going to go off and take an AS exam or they're going to take a mock yes. at the end of year 12, which will determine their UCAS grades. And it's like literally brand new stuff. She was saying, actually, isn't it better to give them a, a few lessons on it at the start of year 12? And then when they meet it again, there's some um, yeah. some retrieval going on there and that interleaving. And it was a really interesting point because I think my um, my initial thought was uh, I would do algebra and I would do indices and certs, but I wouldn't be doing vectors at that point. Yes, I wouldn't yes, be doing functions yes. until I get to functions. But I think she has actually got a really good point that spending the first three weeks of year 12 regardless of the time pressures, because we know that's a big deal. Mm. But she says, if you spend some time then reteaching that year 11 stuff, then they'll benefit from the fact they're coming back to stuff rather than seeing it for the first time later in year 12. And she's got a good point. What, what's your, I, I agree. I agree with that, Joe. Well, what's your take here? And again, um, I, I know you're not currently teaching year 11. I'm, I'm involved in the Bolton Maths Hub at the school I, I used to teach yeah. at. I, I still attend all the meetings. And the last meeting... We had a big chat about this exact thing that whenever the central assess grades are done, the focus then can shift towards uh, preparing kids for A-level. My fear is that there are going to be gaps there, right? Like if you focus on all the stuff that's directly relevant to A-level, yeah. does it mean that you're leaving out some things that just will never come up in A-level? And will, will we have these kids who perhaps are, are really good at the algebra side of things, but maybe aren't quite as well-rounded mathematicians because the focus has all been on this transition stuff. And, and as you've said there, often it falls into let's hammer indices, let's hammer surs, let's hammer quadratics and so on. I just, I just worry that maybe, I mean, it sounds like a really good thing having dedicated time to do transition work, but maybe the like the way the GCSE was set up was to create kind of more well-rounded mathematicians. I, I just worry a little bit. Does that make sense at all or, or not? Um, I guess so. But then also you've got this question of, you know, if we're, if we're creating people, mathematicians of the future who are going to go off and study maths yeah. and related disciplines at university, then they all end up being specialists anyway. Um, so, so I guess, you know, it's, it's a nice idea to have this kind of well-rounded mathematicians, which and that's built into our curriculum from five years old, isn't it, to sort of cover yes. to cover statistics and geometry and algebra and yeah, all this yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I, think, I think we're just in a situation now where we're going to have to accept that we're, uh, we're not going to kind of achieve that aim as much as we normally would, and we're yes. just going to have to prioritise some stuff. Um, and it's not ideal, but, you know... Um, it's I don't I don't really can't really see a way around it at the moment really, um, no. but it's yeah, it's interesting actually because the whole well-rounded if it was up to me to redesign the maths curriculum, I would totally <laughs> take I would take statistics I'm a statistician myself but I think I'd take statistics off so I take you joking yeah but I put it some I put it separately. <laughs> so, where's it go? Where's it going? <laughs> I you're, like, too, you're not bloody Mark McCourt here in a no, wig or something. No, because I, I, I don't dislike statistics. Um, right, I just, okay. I just, I don't like how busy the maths GCSE is, and yeah, and okay. there's no opportunity for depth because it's all about yeah, breadth, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it's almost like I just would, I think I'd. I, it's not. It's not practical to do it, but it's almost like I'd like to see two separate subjects taught at Key Stage Three: maths and statistics. And statistics is covering probability, but and logic, and also um, 
statistical literacy and being able to to interpret statistics in the news because it's such an important thing but actually because of the way it's combined with maths it barely gets a look in when it's actually really vital it's almost like I would have them as two separate things um but then I then and then I suppose when you get to GCSE I I don't know how that would work (laughs) so you'd have to do both um because that's the thing people I can't believe there's a GCSE statistics now which has got this massive crossover with GCSE maths and it's like that doesn't make any sense to me yes like it's, it's a bit of a mess um but statistics is really important I just I I'm frustrated by the the volume of stuff that's in the GCSE which I suppose is meant to be creating really um mathematicians that know a whole load of different disciplines Mm. but actually just means everything gets a really light touch and nothing gets something there that's true um, that sounds like a really good session, Joe. Like it was, and I think um, the only other thing I should mention that oh, yeah. is she said something. She said something about AS. I was thinking about this. These students have never done an external exam, and they're going to get to year yeah, thirteen yeah. and take their A levels, which we know are like the biggest deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's like such a big deal doing your A levels, yeah. and it will be their first external exams and their first results day and all those things. And actually, there is therefore a case for entering year next year's year twelves into AS if there's an opportunity to do so. That's interesting. Um, and actually, we because we know that when they decoupled the AS and the A level, um, a lot of people just don't bother with the AS anymore yeah. because it's disruptive. It takes a lot of time. It's not doesn't even count for anything. So no one bothers with AS anymore. But there is, I think, a case for considering it next um, June mm. for, for year 12s so that they can get experience of sitting an external exam. Um, and I just think that's probably something that if I had a sick form, um, I would be thinking about. But hey, I don't have to think about it because I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I like that. I like that. Plenty to think about there. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what, so here was a twist with me. So I went to see Ed, uh, Ed Southall, oh, talking yeah. geometry juniors. Um, and there was a reason for this. And well, I'll, I'll come to the reason in a second. But here's the twist. I only got to see about maybe 20, 25 minutes of it because on Zoom, all of a sudden, so I was talking after Ed, yeah. my option to enter a breakout room just disappeared, just was yeah. removed. Right. So I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do here? So then I had to spend about 20 minutes on the chat with this smooth MC guy who I was a big fan of from from the last podcast, just trying to sort myself out to get me so I was co-host and then could join breakout rooms and so on. So I missed a big old chunk of Ed's. But Ed was talking about, well, two things really. One is book Geometry Juniors, which looks brilliant. But more generally, just speaking to to getting involved in your child's mathematics and, and, and just kind of lessons for parents, guardians and carers to get involved in in kids' maths. Now that, I'm going to seamlessly link that in a bit later on when I talk about the final session I saw with Tom Harbour, which was all about supporting all parents to engage in their child's maths. But here's my question for you, Joe. Um, So you've, I always forget the ages of your two daughters. Just remind Um, me. Six and nine. Six and nine. So what are you doing? What what, what maths are you doing with them? Are you, do you... What do you, or what did you do when they were a bit younger? Is it, is it all kind of whatever they're doing at school? Or do you like take an act, make an active decision to do all the stuff with them, I guess? No, you know what? I was talking to someone about this the other day about how um, it's almost like this expectation that I will raise these yeah. amazing mathematicians. But actually, I'm a teacher, which means I have no time for my children in term time. Like, you know, I literally, I get in and they're going to bed. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and it's partly my fault because I do stuff at the weekend, career stuff, you know, I do conferences and things. Yeah. But actually, I get probably get less time with my children than most. Um, so I'm not like, doing, I'm not doing yes. all this fancy maths with them. Um, and actually, um, it's interesting because my, my, my two, particularly my older one, they really don't like maths. <laughs> And the, the thing is that, it, and this is one of those things where um, there's a confidence issue where, and I don't, I, I'm not, there's nothing hereditary. I, I'm totally against the idea that being good at or bad at maths is hereditary. My husband failed his maths GCSE and then retook it and failed it again. Um, so he got an E both times right. and, then, and then dropped out of school when he was 16. Um, and obviously I did well at maths. Um, and so, so if there is something genetic in it, then we didn't know what we were, whether we were going to get good mathematicians or not. Um, but actually, I think I think that my daughter, my older one, feels that she um, has pressure from me to be good at maths, which I yes. promise you, it doesn't come from me. But she yeah. she just thinks my mummy's a maths teacher, therefore it's embarrassing that I'm not very yeah. good at it because she does struggle. Um, but actually, what I found is with her is that. Um, so like for example during lockdown when she was being set stuff to do from school but it wasn't a huge amount I was supplementing that with stuff like the Corbett Maths primary five a day and she was so she was just doing a bit of that every day and actually massively built her confidence 
and um, really made her fluent in arithmetic, which is a massive thing in key stage yeah, three. They yeah, do yeah, tons yeah. of arithmetic. And that has therefore meant that overall, she now feels much better about maths. So I'm not doing all these fancy puzzles and reasoning and stuff with her, yeah. but just by helping her to basically be someone where if when they give, because they give her these maths tests out, and I, the first maths test she did in, in year three, she brought it home and she got like three out of 40 or something. And I was like... I don't know how to fix this. Like, yeah, I don't know what to yeah, do yeah. because that's that's a really low score. And actually, just by helping her with a bit of fluency with arithmetic and stuff like that and practicing stuff and doing it, doing your standard retrieval stuff, so basically regularly giving her a Corbett yes. Mass five-a-day primary, which takes her five minutes, so it's not like a massive uh, uh, sort of thing in her life where I'm forcing her to do maths. And now she's getting really good scores in those maths tests, and so she generally likes maths. So, you know, okay. so basically I'm not doing all this fancy reasoning that a lot of people do. And I'm I'm not doing and she's not she's not kind of um like, you know, she's she's not she doesn't love maths, but she is in a good place confidence wise. And I've achieved that by just basically, you know, knowing that the thing that gives students confidence is like things like knowing their times tables and that kind of thing. It just means that they can feel comfortable in the maths class. Um, and then the maths lesson because they know how to do the basics, which gives them the brain space to think about the harder stuff. Right. So, well, yes. You're going to love this, Joe, right? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to fuse in, I'm going to respond to that by, if it's okay with you, just jumping ahead to talk about what Tom Harbour was speaking about, because I think it'll make perfect yeah. sense, this, if that's okay. So first, just to wrap up Ed's session, well, the, the 20 minutes I saw, it was brilliant. And he got his little boy involved as well, which all, always a big hit, always a big hit. I, I need to get Isaac more involved in my talk. It's so very brave. I know, I know, high risk, high risk strategy, but it was really, really good. And he was, again, Ed's questioning was was was, was fantastic. He did a lot of um, which one doesn't belong. So there was four things, and yeah, that's to nice. argue a case for, for each one. And then just as just as I was having to hop out, Ed was showing how, so he showed it with basic shapes and you could argue one's got a different color and all this kind of thing. But then he showed it with um, how you could use it with A-level with different functions and integrations and all this kind of thing. And it was really, really nice. And I like that Ed's questioning was great. He said to his little boy, um, which one Which one do you think is the odd one out? And then the, uh, his lad would say, I think it's this one. And Ed would say, why? And then I really liked Ed's next question where he, Ed would say, well, I think this one's the odd one out. What do you think my reason is for it? And it was just nice how he kind nice, of te yeah. tease things out. And I, I really, really like that. Uh, but anyway... As I say, this this fused in nicely to uh, the session I went to last. Now, if you remember last time, uh, whenever it was Gemma Sherwood's session, I had oh, yes. to listen on the way to pick up Isaac to nursery yeah. from nursery. So it's exact same with this one. <laughs> so Isaac is now obsessed with. I bought him a fairy tales book, and he likes um, Rumpelstiltskin. Right? Oh, I think he just likes saying the name Rumpelstiltskin, yeah. right? And he's obsessed. He keeps saying. What's the baby doing? What's the queen doing? What's Rumpelstiltskin doing? So <laughs> as he's, he's chatting to me about Rumpelstiltskin, as I'm trying to listen about how I'm supposed to be supporting him, because the, the session was supporting all parents to engage in their child's maths. So here you go, Joe Morgan. I'm going to give you some fascinating facts here. It was by Tom Harbour. I thought it was a brilliant session. I have a lot of vested interest in this because... At ED, we're trying to get parents involved uh, working with their kids. Yeah. I, when I did my Loughborough series of interviews on the podcast, uh, I had Professor Jim, Tim Jay, who talks about his research into parental engagement. And uh, I've got Isaac. And the thing is, whenever I interviewed Dr. Helen Williams on the show, she was telling me about all these things they do at early years with butter beans and oh, yeah. like, all these different counters. I'm bloody clueless, Joe. Like, I, I like picking up the kids whenever they know a bit of stuff. And I just teach them how to add fractions and, you know, solve a quadratic. The thought of teaching Isaac how to count and the concept of a number and all this, I don't have a bloody clue what, what I'm doing here. So I'm fascinated by the things parents can do that, that lead to kids enjoying maths more and being better. So here's a couple of facts for you and feel free to respond at any stage. So this was all based on Tom's research. I think I'm going to have to get him on the podcast because it was, it was fascinating stuff. So first he said that the focus of schools should not be involving parents in schooling, but it should be more engaging them in learning with their kids. So all these kind of headline figures like um, attendance at parents' evening or coffee mornings and stuff, he thinks yeah. that's kind of the wrong focus because it's not about getting parents involved in the actual schooling of their kids. It's more about what happens in the home environment. And again, he just said, like, if you think about how much time in every 24 hours the kids spends in school doing maths compared to how much time they spend 
in the home environment, then it's, you know, that's where the significant stuff has the potential to happen, particularly at primary school with, with, with their interactions with parents. So then he went through the top barriers for parents getting involved in their child's maths. Now, again, this is predominantly a primary school, but I thought some of these were fascinating. So what about this one? I love this. So the first is some parents, and it seems to be from the more disadvantaged areas, and this is all, I should say, disclaimer here. If I've misinterpreted some of Tom's findings here, it's all my fault here. Well, it's Isaac's fault chatting about Rumpelstiltskin, but this was just what I could could pick up on. So um, some parents don't value the present. No, don't value the future as much as the present. And it tends to be more parents from disadvantaged backgrounds. So whereas education is kind of a long, you see the benefits long term of getting involved in your kid's education. You're not going to see it in the immediate kind of future where you sat down trying to decide whether you want to help your kid to read and so on. And what he did was um, he used that marshmallow test. Do you know that one there where you've got kids... Kids in a room, you've got a marshmallow in front of them, and can they be patient enough to not eat that marshmallow yeah. on the promise that they're going to get, you know, two or three marshmallows in the future? And what he, what they found in this research that works if you have parents who are who are kind of really present orientated is if you can come up with nudges to help them value the present more. So simple things like text, text messages to remind them to spend some time reading with their child or to remind them to spend some time doing times tables or whatever. That then brings everything forward to the present because the reward is kind of responding to this. Yeah, I've done this. As opposed to this kind of intangible thing that happens where you're only going to see the benefits, you know, 20, 30 years down the line mm. or something. So that was one thing, not a, one barrier for parents is not valuing the present. It's incredible, isn't it? That- the idea that some parents need to be told to read with their children and you think it's it's quite shocking, isn't it? Like, I, I There's no room in my children's, um, there's no space in my children's bedroom for more books because they were just, you know, there's books everywhere, there's books piled up everywhere and they, they, want, they just want books all the time and they're not massively into reading chapter books and they're not like yes. some kids who are reading, like, you know, they're not, they weren't reading Harry Potter when they were five and stuff like that. They're, they're, they're just, they just like flicking through books and they particularly like kind of graphic novel comic style books which is also great and I'm encouraged them to do that um but yeah we just I just feel like we have this this what this house full of books um and to me I just I find it so hard to imagine children that don't own a book but I know that ha- that happens oh, yeah and, yeah and it's and it's just such a you know I'm sort of in my like, privileged bubble of of being able to afford yes. books but also um, liking books myself, and you know, my 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 older daughter is nine and a half. There's not been a single night of her life where we've not read to her at bedtime. Mm. Um, and I can't, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine. Well, we know, but actually, we know it is a massive. We know thing. it happens. Yeah, some some yeah. children don't have a single book in their house. Um, and it's yeah. just fascinating yeah. whether. I mean, what whether it is the role of the school to kind of get involved there and what they can mm. do. And it just, it interests me these, I'm, I'm quite interested in kind of behavior just in general and this social behavior and this idea of these little nudges. Um, I know that, for example, uh, Harry Fletcher Wood's writing a book on nudges at the moment, oh, right. how you how nudges can, can bring about certain behaviors in students, positive behaviors and so on. And I just found that quite interesting that if you want to bring something to the forefront of parents' minds to where it is something that would would only have a long-term benefit if you want to make it a more short-term thing it's just a simple act of a little email every day or a, or a text message just to remind parents and it doesn't have to be in a patronizing way you know it can you know you, you could imagine schools writing it quite carefully and it just being a regular thing so I thought that was interesting this this is good though as well there's a few more so another big barrier that parents felt was um, new techniques taught in school they don't understand them yeah uh, they yeah. don't understand bar modeling numicon and all this yeah um, and, and I, I, I feel that too again with, with Isaac I don't know how I'm supposed to be teaching him like the basics of, of maths in the next few years. I genuinely don't know. Now, I think things like Ed's book can help. But also, this was really interesting. The point that uh, Tom was making was that there are no fixed rules to things. And it, as long as you're just kind of playing around with materials and playing around with numbers and talking about things in a positive way, it's going to be a, a, a real benefit. But then he made the point that, of course, some parents... So you watch like a video on YouTube and it'll say like, Right, let's get three tomatoes and two apples and let's play around with these. How many have we got? How many different ways can we group them and so on? You don't need fancy manipulatives Uh or anything. But Tom made the point that some parents just don't have access to those. You don't have access to to, to food. You know, like if you're having to go to the food bank 
and you're short of food, the last thing you're going to want to do is use that food to play around, you know, learning maths and stuff. So there are all these barriers that, as we say, in our privileged position, we were perhaps not even aware of. It's not as easy as to say, just go and grab some materials and, and kind of play around with numbers with your kids. There are all these barriers that I just wasn't aware of um, at all. And there's a couple of other things as well that I just wanted to bring your attention to. Then I'll shut up and, and feel free to feel free to comment. Um, one barrier is that parents say that their kids just don't enjoy maths. And what's quite interesting, um, he cite, Tom cited research that traditional homeworks like worksheets and stuff aren't that effective at primary school anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually perhaps there is a responsibility on the school to provide homeworks that perhaps are a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. But then the problem with that is you get this, you get a lot of parents saying that they've got maths anxiety themselves and that yeah. they'd, they'd rather kind of just leave the room than, than, you know, the fear of trying to do one of these worksheets and stuff with their kids. And Tom's Tom said there that one of the best things parents can do and the school can help here is that if homeworks are a little bit more open-ended, like little things like um, play games with your kid or, or play shop with your kid, you know, doing change and all that, where it's a bit more of an exploration as opposed to here are five questions, you've got to get them all right. That can really help reduce the parents' maths anxiety and make them more willing to get involved working with, with the kid. So again, there's, again, responsibility on the school there to provide the kind of work for home that can help parents get a bit more engaged. And the final thing I'll say, and I thought this was really interesting, parents cited that they don't know what maths their child is currently learning, and that's not true in any other subject. So you'll get kids come home and they'll say, I'm doing an Egyptian project in history or whatever, or in art or something, but they're not going to say, I'm doing my number bonds to 20 in maths because they don't really know. It's hard to articulate what you're doing in maths, particularly for younger kids. And if the parents don't know what the kids are doing, then again, it's just another barrier that makes it harder for them to, to engage themselves in their kids' learning. So I just thought it was just a fascinating session um, on all these barriers that I just not considered uh, many of them. Really. It's interesting because you haven't yet got to this part of parenting where you've got yes. to primary school. You know, I reckon I get three or four emails a day from the school and it does my head in because they're just okay. it's constant. So basically I get in from work and if I look in my inbox, I will have, you know, um, the latest lunch menu and an email about an event yes. that's coming up and a little reminder about this and, uh, and all like And it's, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of communication you get um, and, and most of it is kind of essential. Um, and I, and I, you know, there's not much of that where that I can say, oh, why are they bought, why are they sending me yes. that? They're just clogging up my inbox. Um, and I, um, I really want to be involved in my, in my um, children's education. So I read everything and I act on everything. And if it asks you to, you know, if it says they have to get dressed up in two days time, because they never give you enough notice, then I will sort that. And if it says that they have to bring in, oh my God, the last one was ingredients for a, a fruit crumble but they tell you like one day before and it's like, yes. what? when I'm in a pandemic, I'm not going to run out to the shop and get some tin apples. Um, so there's all, you know, that you get, it's amazing how much communication you get. So actually schools have got to get a bit of a balancing out there because they, yes. if they're going to start sending all these texts yes. saying, oh, don't yes. forget to read with your child tonight. And um, why don't you try this little mass activity? Yes. Then it's just kind of more and it becomes really overwhelming. And perhaps yeah. if I wasn't a full time working mum, I wouldn't find it quite so overwhelming. But actually it is it's a lot of information. And I know as part because because for my school, I'm in charge of the website and the newsletter for the school I work in. Um, and we're always uh, we're always really aware that we don't want to do something like send two different letters to parents on the same day about the same thing, for example. Or sorry, about something different. So we don't want to send yes. a letter home about World Book Day on the same day that we send a letter home about yes. um, uniform or something. Yep. So we're really careful that we don't sort of bombard parents. Um, but yeah, you wait and see because you you will you will feel <laughs> the 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 overwhelming kind of workload that comes yes. with having children in school. And I've got one in an infant school and one in a junior school. Um, so the two different schools and they um they have all different so i get different communications yeah, yeah. different systems and it is really overwhelming um but that's not to say that schools shouldn't try and certainly um you know i think text messages obviously come with a cost when when my school sends text messages to parents there's a cost but if we send an email there's no cost but we know yes. the text messages are more um, effective so text messages is a good way to communicate um, this is interesting. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to get Tom on because this yeah. sounds to me, he's got a podcast episode written all over it. This. Yeah. And again, it's what's interesting from 
teachers have got an interest in knowing about this and teachers who have got kids have got an interest in knowing about this so it'll be it'll yeah. be fascinating yeah it's, i'll get i'll get some it's funny because when you said to me like what do i do with my kids and i and i think well with the older one i do some like corporate math stuff um and with the younger one you know really i just want her to you know eat, eat something that's not chips so that's like yeah. my main priority and um and, and i don't so I, don't, I, I sort of feel like i don't do much with either of them but actually if you're comparing me to a parent who doesn't yeah. read with their children or count yeah. with their children actually compared to them I do loads it just seems like something that I don't I shouldn't don't need to say that obviously I've always counted with my children because I just sort of feel like everyone does it but actually listening to what you're saying here actually um no they don't not everyone does it do they yeah. you know we have um we've got Numicon at home and we've got counters and we've got um number lines and stuff and I don't Jeez. use them loads but the fact that I own all that stuff for my children I suppose does make me different to the average person who doesn't do any of that stuff Jeez, and you don't use those in lessons, so that's very good. No, no, know. but the thing that's is that, great. yeah, I bought the Numicon when my daughter started primary school. I don't know if the school told me to, or I don't know, it's really expensive. Um, and um, But the main thing I've used from the pack of Numicon is the counters, and, and I, we use them all the time when we're doing them, um, I'm helping them with their maths homework. Actually, I tell you what, the main thing I do is help them with their maths homework. Um, but we do that by, yeah, getting counters out and stuff like that, and me trying to explain things in all different ways and so, yeah, there's nothing wrong with me helping them with their mass homework. I promise I don't do it for them. <laughs> there we go. Right. OK, so uh, that was I've kind of done a two for one there. So what did you do after? Oh, you came to mine, didn't you? This must have been my session. I did go to yours. Yeah. And actually, you know, that, that was a big deal because I really wanted to see Alison Hopper and, and who was on at the same time as you. So I'm going to have to catch up with her um, <laughs> on the video because she was doing one on algebra transition key stage two to three yes. and she's she's really good on transition stuff it's really i wouldn't have taken offense you know if you had gone to another one <laughs> yeah, I do, you remember, up about... do you remember i said in the last podcast that i am actually teaching area um i think it's the first topic i've got with year seven when we go back after easter so um it was it was yeah it was really helpful because you were talking about area and perimeter and all the various misconceptions um and you started off with the counting square stuff didn't you and yes. um there's a you showed some really good resources for counting squares and actually there's a few smile resources for that and it's just funny because I tried to use one of those with a year seven class once and it was one of the most disastrous lessons I've ever had because they (laughs) they just had it was like you were saying if they're not 45 degree angles where you've got where you're counting squares like say you're trying to count in a triangle and you can just sort of see that two stick together or or in fact you could just find the whole rectangle and halve it for counting yes. squares in a triangle um it was it was it's a smile resource and and I, I looked it up and it's if anyone's interested it's a smile 2382 you know smile resources all have like a four digit number so 2382 areas of polygons and it's basically just a load of different shapes made of squares um and I remember I gave it to my students thinking it was like a quick recap yes. of counting squares before I went and taught them area in the kind of secondary school way. And mm-hmm. they had no clue on the counting squares. And it was because a lot of them, I was like, well, can't you just imagine that little bit moving around there? And it's yeah, like you were saying, like, that's really hard. That's really conceptually challenging to talk about picking bits up and moving them to join onto other bits. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I have experienced that. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I'm now thinking after what you were saying in your um, talk today, that I think I might start my teaching on uh, area with, a, with a, a, a load of stuff on counting squares, but a load yes. of really interesting stuff because, you yes. know, you showed some resources with a really high level of challenge and that would actually be a really sensible place to start because you're starting then with the concept of area. Yes. Um, yes. So I think I'm rather than just sort of assume that the counting square stuff is primary stuff and I can just skip that, I'm actually going to spend some time on it. Um, and there's actually a, another smile resource, Polygon Areas, uh, which is 2084. And what they've got is it starts by explaining it's got this lovely sort of shape and it says um, there's two ways to count the areas, the area of this using by counting squares. You can either draw a rectangle around it and work out the bits that aren't included or you can split the shape into sort of triangles and stuff. Oh, and, then, and then it goes on on the sheet to have a load of examples. So I think I might start with that. So thank you, because you've given me this big like inspiration of, of stuff I need to do. And I can't assume that counting squares is easy. <laughs> No, they do call me inspirational, Joe, so I'm glad you've, you've picked up on that. But yeah, you're right. Like, again, it shocked me. So for, for listeners who weren't there, and I'll put links to all the resources uh, in my session in the show notes. And Joe, if actually, if you could uh, DM me those two smile ones, yeah, uh, the, the links, I'll, I'll add those as well. Um, so I was just looking for where kids go wrong in perimeter and area. And I just thought, I'll have a quick glance at the area from Counting Squares quiz. Kids will be fine with that. 
And I looked and I thought, are you winding me up here? Like there was 40%, 30%, like kids just messing up these questions anytime there was a non-45 degree line involved. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. You know what? It's because that is 100% reasoning. Like that's not procedural yeah. and it's not, yeah. Um, there's yeah, yeah. no formula. To, to be able to, unless it's a rectangle, but any other shape, there's some reason, even if it's a triangle and you can just think about the rectangle and halve it, yeah, there's yeah, still yeah. some reasoning there. Um, and when the questions get trickier, then it, it does take a bit of thinking. And um, yeah, they're actually really lovely questions. So you've made me realise that. So that's good. But yeah, also, like you say, um, surprisingly um, poorly done on diagnosticquestions.com. Yes. Like some really yeah. surprising results. So we did that, and then I chatted about air of a quadrilateral and just yes. looked at parallelograms. How poor well, I absolutely loved your big reveal um, with your snazzy animations, <laughs> <laughs> and you called them pesky parallelograms. No, um, and and um, yeah, parallelograms. The funny thing is, I I just go on and on about perpendicular height. Yes, and, I, and the thing is that because I've already gone on about perpendicular height when I've taught triangles. When you get to parallelograms, you're like, well, do you remember in triangles where yes, you have to do the base yes. times the perpendicular height and halve it? And you sort of think, well, I'm still saying the same thing. It's still talking about that perpendicular height. Yes. But they still don't get it. So obviously what I'm doing isn't good enough. Yeah. And it was interesting, wasn't it? That's the the amount of questions. Well, for, for a start, whenever there was a, a, a redundant dimension in there, that messed kids up. So if you gave the kids the slanted height, they wanted to include that. But also what fascinated me was every time one of the dimensions was inside the shape, the kids thought it, you, you didn't include it. So yeah. if you measure, if you put the perpendicular height inside the parallelogram, kids ignored it, put it on the outside of the parallelogram, they used it. It was just, just bizarre. And it, it all comes down to, I think, as I mentioned in the session, we need to make sure kids have a wide variety of experiences, different types of questions that they answer. And Paul Rowlandson's blog was, was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul Rowlandson, um, he, he, I, I wish he could do a blog post like that for every single topic. Too, and then so, yeah, as soon as I – so I suppose when I'm teaching area next term, I'll start off with my squares. I'll do some stuff on triangles, and I'm going to probably use the great resource from Chris McGrain's blog on triangles where it's like a fill-in-the-gaps type thing. Yes. It's lovely backwards thinking. Um and then I guess I will be doing parallelograms and, and I can go through Paul Rowlandson's blog and basically it will guide my teaching of that. And it's got all these lovely ideas for tasks. Um, but I also liked your side-by-side -side animations. Um, mm. Were they GeoGebra that you'd built? GeoGebra, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're right about this idea of when we're using dynamic uh, software, just showing them something changing um, makes it really hard for them to focus on what's changed because they can't see where it started once you've changed yes. it so you do it side by side so you've got the kind of the original say rectangle and then you've got the rectangle that you've you've changed in some way and then you're saying you know what, what what's the impact of that change and in a parallelogram still got the same area because you've you know what because of the sort of way that you've skewed it or whatever we call that um but yeah it's um it's it's, it's a really good point that um animate having the having the original on the screen yes. side by side with the one you've changed just has a much bigger impact on students and actually allows them to be able to think clearly about what's changed so yeah really good idea I think just inspirational session was the, the bottom line there, you were, you, were, you were thinking. Fantastic. Right. Okay. So, and yeah, just a reminder, I'll put links to those in the show notes page and Jo will, um, will add her smile links as well. Yeah. So that must mean we've, well, you must have two more sessions to talk about and I've got one. So do you want to go for, what did you do after my session? Yeah, although yeah, I don't have much to say about this one because it was just fun, and, I, and it was just it was just like a nice. You know, sometimes you just want to do like a bit. Of fun Which one did you do? Which I did Ben Sparks. I did Ben Sparks. Yeah. I thought you would have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, it was good. Hey, did you? I mean, if I, I was saying earlier, my husband plays D and D, so I, I called down to him. I said, "Have you got any dice in here?" And he's got <laughs> about a million. He's got every sort of dice you could possibly want. Um, but yeah, so I, I played along. I wasn't very good at it. I kept, I kept. So this was people who people might know the game of pig. Is it called I'd never heard of it. Yeah, pig? I'd never heard of it. Pig. No, Pig, they call it. The Game of Pig. Yeah, yeah. I have heard of it because I remember it from when I was young, although I never owned it. I think I had a friend who had it. And the idea is that, that you throw the two pigs. It's two pigs, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and, the, and w the way they land is what determines your score. And it's a bit like rolling a dice because I think they yes. can land in, you know, that each pig has got six different positions and one and one side's got a spot on it, which is the equivalent to rolling a one on a die. Right. So, um, yeah, the game, the game of Pig is... Yeah, it's quite. It's quite. I think it's quite an eighties thing. I just remember yeah. it being like when I was young. Um, but we played it with um, dice, which is the same idea. And the idea is that when you 
you you roll the dice and you add up the what you score each time but you basically wipe out when you get a one yes. so if you if you roll a one then you go down to zero you've lost all your points but you can bank at any point yes so you know if i roll like a five and then a four i can bank it and, and i've got nine points but if i didn't bank it and my next roll was a one i'd have got zero oh, so you yeah, need to sort yeah, of yeah. it's this sort of you know you have to try and bank when you, uh, before you think you're going to get a one um, and I was rubbish at it to be honest because <laughs> you know then he said you know we had to pick a number and say once so if I rolled say so I picked six I was really low everyone else went really high but I said right if I roll two dice and once I've got a score of six then I'm going to bank yeah, so I was yeah, banking yeah. really quickly each time um, which meant that overall <laughs> I was getting really low score. And some people were like kept rolling until they yes. got sort of 25 or something. And they didn't, they were like real risk takers. And obviously, because I was a real like rubbish risk taker, I just didn't do very well. I scored really low. But it was, um, it was interesting. It was good. Yeah. And we've said this before, haven't we? He's a good presenter. He's a great presenter, Ben Sparks. I know you're a big fan of big, I'm a big huge fan of, fan of Ben Sparks. He's my favourite. And I haven't seen Kath Moore before, and she was very good. And as usual, with, with Ben and when he's presenting with someone, it's always that wonderful interaction between yes. them um, that really works well. Um, she was really good. And, and together, they really um, kind of ran the session very well, and it was really engaging. And one of the things they were talking about was the benefits of doing these things online because this yes. is the sort of session they would normally run with students and they were talking about the difference between running it in a classroom mm. or in a hall or you know with a large group of students compared to doing it online um and he and he said one of the things is it's um this was really accessible like people can roll a dice at home or wherever they are but also being able to gather data live is really powerful so you know having people at home type into a google forms and then him show the data live on screen um, is something that is actually harder to do when you're doing it in person so yes. it was um it was interesting on the kind of how to i think the the sort of the one of the main points in the talk was to talk about how to engage students in enrichment online um, and how there are benefits to doing it online and um, it, that, that got me thinking, so we've spoke about this before, about how one of the benefits of school closures might be that teachers might be a bit more comfortable using technology like Google Forms, uh, Microsoft Forms, and so on, and kids might be a bit more comfortable with it. And whilst we still don't have devices in the classroom, you could still imagine setting something like that almost for homework for kids to do because they're, they're whatever, whether you're a Microsoft ecosystem or a Google one, you've got access to all that. And if you've been using it during school closures, just like you might set, you've been talking about maybe setting one of your quizzes uh, for kids to do as yeah. homework that you were doing during, uh, during school closures. You could almost imagine doing something, maybe not exactly this because there's the live element, but maybe there is a role for teachers to use more technology outside of the lessons now that the kids have got more used to it and teachers have got more used to it. I, I don't know. It just, just feels to me that could be a possibility. Well, yeah, I was talking to Ed Southall. He was planning a session to deliver on his um, PGCE course about how to review exams in lessons. Because you know it's like mm. the most boring lesson ever yes, where you, you give back exams to students. And there's all sorts of um, creative ideas of, yes. of things teachers do. And quite often it involves students who've got things right helping other students yeah, who got them yeah. wrong and, and it doesn't I mean I've never really liked any of the ideas I've never found a good way of doing it and I don't know I don't think I don't think this is necessarily a good idea but one thing I thought was that um we could actually record ourselves going through the assessment yeah and as a homework say right I've given you your tests back now for homework you're going to watch my video of me going through it but you can fast forward the ones you got right. Yeah. You know when you've got a student who's got like 85% yeah, and you yeah. think, what a big waste of time. And even though yes. they may learn stuff from hearing you talk about other students' misconceptions, it's still quite frustrating if you've got yeah, a student absolutely. who's done really well to be have to listen to some of the really easier stuff in the test. And you, but then you've got other students who really need to listen to everything. So actually I thought, I wonder if this is the way forward for, for test review. The only thing is we just, there's no way of, of making them do it and knowing whether yeah. they've watched the video. But I did think that, you know, it, it could be the future of going through tests is to just record the teacher going through it and say, right, watch the ones you got wrong and you can, you can pause and you, you know, and you can fast forward bits and, that sort of thing. Don't know. But yeah, there's certainly, uh, I think it's got us all thinking, hasn't it, about things. I think, so. I think so. I think so. Right. So what was your final session then, Joe Morgan? What did you do last? Um, I went to see Ruth Ball and she was doing a session and it was, she was with someone else. And actually, I don't know their name. Let me check. Um, Claire Warren. And they, they, the session was called, mm, that's interesting. How does that work? 
<laughs> yeah, I saw the yeah, 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 I saw that one. That looked was, good. Um, I mean, it was aimed, it was a it was a primary session, but basically it was just them sort of having fun doing some maths again, and and me just joining in. Um, and I think there's one thing I'll talk to you about yeah, from that, which was just to do with elevens. And elevens are so much fun, aren't they? You know, like the you know I've talked I've talked to you before about divisibility laws for eleven. Yeah, you like them. really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um and, and you know multiplying like. For example, if I said that they started by saying do 35 times 11. Now, can I just say, I've seen all this before, but I never remember it. You could show me these tricks a million times and I will never remember them, but I do enjoy them when I see them. So if I did 35 times 11, the way I did it was I did 10 lots of 35 yeah, plus one yeah. lot of 35. Yeah, 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 and so yeah, I got yeah. the answers pretty quickly, but you know, there you get 385. And so basically yes. you've got your, your number 35 and that's the first and last digit, yeah, the three and the five. Okay. And the middle digit is just the two digits added yes, together. Yes, yes. So if we wanted to do 23 times 11, the first digit will be two, the last yeah. digit will be three and the middle digit will be five because oh, you just add the two right. digits. So it's yeah. two, five, three. So basically yeah. that means you can multiply by 11 in seconds. That's um, nice. yeah. and, then, and then we sort of went on to look at um, what happens when that middle number is greater than 10 because yes. that can do the things. And then we started playing around with all like really big numbers, multiplying them by 11 and nice. all sorts of things like that. And it's one of those things where you can show students that, but they won't remember it because I've been, I reckon I've seen that in conference presentations two or three times. Yes. And yet I don't remember it, but I do really enjoy it. So in terms of engaging <laughs> students and also getting them to practice, because it's one of those things, it's a bit like the 1089 problem, isn't it? Where you'll get, you get them to do, um, you get them to do some sort of addition and subtraction by stealth really don't you sort of like sneaking in some fluency practice while you're engaging them in really interesting maths and quite a lot of the problems they were showing us were like that where they were like number grids where we we're working things out but really they were saying oh you're all doing lots of adding today aren't you so it was like yeah, this sort of, uh, yes, way of getting yes. students to practice some fairly straightforward stuff but with a nice bit of engaging maths as well and I suppose it's the the sort of the, the thing you're being shown to do with a number grid or to do with what happens to be multiplied by 11 you're probably not going to remember it because you're not necessarily going to use it but it wasn't yes. the point the point was to enjoy maths and also to do a bit of practice of, of some other things but yeah it was fun. nice that sounds a good way to end the end the end the day there I'm also just pick you up on something Joe Morgan here you, yeah. you just slipped in casually Ben Sparks your favorite presenter like you're speaking to me having just <laughs> Been to one of my sessions. Can I say he's my favourite? Um, like, it, it, what would you call him? Like, he's a, a enrichment presenter. Fine, he's not like, fine. <laughs> fine. You're my we'll favourite pedagogy presenter. Fine, thanks, Joe. I'll take that. I'll take that. Right, fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end. Now we're back again tomorrow, Joe. That's right, isn't it? Is it? Tomorrow, yeah, it's tomorrow. No? yeah. It's quite tiring, all this conference, it is, isn't it? It yeah. is. And yeah. now, I was just, again, normally we'd just be going to the bar now, wouldn't we? Maybe go to the quiz, have a drink yeah. or whatever. But you've been supping your wine throughout this session. I have been, I yeah, yeah. Make the listeners aware of that, whereas I like to keep focused <laughs> on, on this, on, on the job in hand. Uh, but we'll, so we'll see you again tomorrow, Joe Morgan. And you're going to send me, you're going to DM me the smile things. I'll yes. bang them on the podcast show notes so listeners can listen to those. Uh, well, Joe Morgan, as ever, absolute pleasure. And I look forward to speaking to you tomorrow. Yeah, see you tomorrow.